0: from KQED
1: From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum Do you think bees have feelings? Pollination ecologist Stephen Buckman does. He's been studying bees for 40 years and through his research and others, Buckman has concluded bees have thoughts, emotions, memories, and personalities beyond the complex behaviors we've known about. His findings could help explain why bee colonies are collapsing at alarming rates and Buckman hopes forces to rethink how they're treated. California's fruits, nuts, and vegetables rely on bee pollination that's trucked in. We take a closer look at What a Bee Knows, after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. More than two million commercial honeybee colonies are trucked to California groves every February for almond pollination alone. Our state's bounty of nuts, fruits, and vegetables relies on bee pollination. And if that isn't enough to make you appreciate the fuzzy-winged insects, try they're sentient. According to Stephen Buckman, bees feel pain, have personalities, can play soccer, and count to four. Buckman, a University of Arizona pollination ecologist, has a new book called What a Bee Knows, exploring the thoughts, memories, and personalities of bees. And listeners, have you sensed that bees have thoughts and feelings in your interactions with them? Are you a backyard beekeeper? What's your favorite bee fact? You can tell us by emailing forum at kqed.org, calling 866-733-6786, or posting on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at kqedforum. Stephen Buckman, welcome.
3: Yeah, hi. Coming to you from sunny Tucson, Arizona.
1: Yeah, you study in Arizona, but you hail from California, right? That's where you've had your first major bee encounters?
3: Uh, Yeah, I, I grew up in Southern California. Uh, Placentia, but I did my doctorate in entomology at uh, University of California, Davis. So I'm an Aggie, not too far from you guys.
1: So you had a particularly harrowing experience with bees while you were in high school in Placentia. Can you tell us about that?
3: Yeah. A friend of mine and I decided that uh, we were going to go get some honey, and the wild colony was living in uh, the walls of an old shed, but unfortunately, we decided to do this on a kind of drizzly cold day and with very primitive equipment, uh, not so great bee veils. and I think I had the brilliant idea of wearing uh black socks. <laughs> so after the bees exploded out at us after removing the first board, and I got probably over a hundred stings, and uh, you know, three or four days later my my football my ankles were still shaped like footballs, I had learned my lesson.
1: And this didn't make you fear or even despise bees after this? Your interest in them grew instead.
3: Yeah, it, it, it did grow after that. And I've, I spent uh, 22 years as a research entomologist at a federal bee laboratory in Tucson, but studying honeybees. But my first love are really the, the other bees. You know, we have about 4,000 species of bees in the continental U.S. and globally about 21,000. So yeah, my bee research has taken me to the wilds of rainforests of Costa Rica and Panama, the deserts of Australia, and uh, many, many places.
1: You write really beautifully about your encounters with bees in your book, What a Bee Knows, you write, I've trained bees to visit artificial and real flowers with indoor flight arenas. I've pointed a shotgun microphone at bees while they buzz pollinated roadside nightshade flowers in southeastern Arizona and then analyze their buzzes in terms of frequency, duration, and amplitude. I've watched bees stick out their tongues at me as my colleagues and I puffed test flower scents at them. In every possible way, my life has been a wonderful and fascinating journey into the private lives of bees while discovering some of their innermost mysteries. So you have studied bees for some four decades now. Tell us what has convinced you that they're sentient, um, that they can feel that they're a bee, essentially.
3: Right. First, I I may have a slightly different definition of sentience. Uh, I do believe that bees are sentient, but uh, the first part of that definition is that an animal is capable of experiencing pain. And there's a controversy about this among scientists, but I'm on the side that does believe that bees can experience pain. I mean, in the lab, for example, every time I would Grab a bee with a pair of forceps, it turns around, buzzes at me and attempts to sting me. <laughs> I, I think this is a good affirmation that they don't like it and that they are feeling something akin to pain. Um, bee biologists call these alarm or defensive buzzing. And in nature, let's say a lizard or a bird grabs a bee and it buzzes, even if it doesn't sting them. Uh, they often the, the predator often drops, drops the bee. Um, other definitions or other people that have thought about sentience expand upon that definition to include the uh, capacity of animals to experience sensations and even emotions. Hmm. Um, But I I guess I draw the line a little bit there, Uh, other than perhaps uh, anxiety, if you want to call it that. I'm not sure that insects like bees have, have other emotions. At least it's very, very difficult to figure out if they do. So
1: so how do you test for or observe bees as anxious and define it that way?
3: Yeah. One of my colleagues, uh, Lars Chitka, who just wrote a beautiful book of his own called The Mind of a Bee last year, in his laboratories in London, I, I remember one experiment that he did very clearly, and he made these artificial uh, robotic crab spiders. And Crab spiders are sit and wait predators. So they'll sit on a flower, they'll wait for a tasty bee to come by, and they'll grab it and then basically suck the juices out. Uh, so he outfitted his robotic spiders with foam pinchers, and when a bee came too close, the crab spider robot grabbed the bee for two or three seconds and then released it. Uh, so the bees were were harassed a bit. And later, those same bees, they were they were marked with a little paint dot so he could identify them. When they came by later, they really avoided the uh, robotic spiders. So that's just one example that he uses uh, for what might be experienced as a wariness or uh, anxiety.
1: He even suggested that it could mean that bees have some form of PTSD because there were bees that even after that experience would basically react to the areas if there were crab spiders there when there weren't like false alarms or that they would take more time scanning the flowers than they did before they knew that crab spiders Ex- were there?
3: Yeah, exactly. They were much more careful and what an observer would call uh well, wariness. They were just took took more time to really check out the artificial flower to see if there was a, uh, a danger there. Um, in another set of experiments, a different research team took honeybees, and they were, I suppose you would say, trying to simulate a predator like a bear or a skunk coming to a honeybee colony, and they would shake the hive. And uh, Previously, they had trained the bees to uh sugar water solutions and some of them are sweet some of them have been, been spiked with very bitter quinine and that was sort of a a punishment so that team also talked about uh anxious bees that they did remember a bad experience for a period of several days
1: but you say you draw the line at certain emotions why that bees can experience emotions.
3: Well, I guess I'm just being putting my science guy hat on and trying to not expand into territory that we don't really know a lot about. Um, uh, for example, with with the pain sensation, I definitely feel they can uh, experience pain there There are things called nociceptor scent cells in bees and other insects, and that's a good indication that they're feeling or capable of feeling noxious stimuli and then try to move away from them out of potential danger. Um, other insects like fruit flies have been really really examined, and they have a ion channel in their brain associated with that nociception um mm-hmm it's called a TRPA1 channel and it's possible that bees also have this and um there there's a bit of difference in the bee brains and ours we don't ex- bees don't exactly have the same sort of uh dopamine opioid pleasure centers but they do have something called octopamine and so uh again we can't we can't ask them but we know that some of that hardwiring and Chemical magic inside their tiny poppy-sized brains is is also there. Um,
1: yeah. So, what does it look like when a bee is optimistic? As one of the um, emotions that may potentially be there, but you wouldn't go so far as to say that they're like experiencing joy or a high.
3: Right. Right. Uh, well, they can remember uh, the amount of nectar or pollen in a flower. So, and some flowers do refill. So, perhaps some bees are optimistic and would come back to a flower patch later knowing that the flowers they had uh, drunk from and emptied earlier in the day had been refilled later. So, you know, I suppose that might be one sort of uh, optimism. I, I talk about in my book that uh, bees sleep and they do sleep for about six to ten hours per day. And um, they have characteristic sleep postures and sleep stages. So there's a uh, first type is kind of a wakefulness where there's high antennal activity where they wave their feelers around. Second is kind of a lighter sleep and not so many antennal movements. And third is what we might cause a, uh, call a deep sleep. When the bees are quiet, they have quite a rigid posture and there's no antennal movements. Um, And this is not my field of research, but other scientists have, uh, like Randolph Menzel in Germany, consider that bees are consolidating their navigational memories, their orientation and ability to fly to and from their nests uh, during sleep. Pretty much like um, humans are consolidating memories during sleep.
1: So then can Um, bees dream?
3: Well, (laughs) we don't really know but I'd like to think so. Uh, maybe bees are dreaming about an especially rich flower patch with delicious nectar that they had sampled earlier that day. Uh, or, we, you know, we talked about the crab spider. So perhaps they're dreaming about a scary escape, a near miss from the clutches of a deadly crab spider laying in wait for them on a flower that they had just visited.
1: Oh, well, you mentioned uh, Lars Titka, the, the researcher, and I understand he's also part of a a rock band uh, known as the Killer Bee Queen so we're going to go into the break listening to some of that music before we go deep into bees with Stephen Buckman more after the break stay with us you're listening to Forum I'm Mina Kim Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about bees this hour with Stephen Buckman. Stephen Buckman is a pollination ecologist who has studied bees for more than 40 years and is author of the new book, What a Bee Knows, exploring the thoughts, memories, and personalities of bees. And you, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation with your bee questions. You can post them on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum. You can call with them at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can email Forum at kqed.org. One of the things that Buckman is doing is seeking to understand the full emotional capacity of bees. And I'm curious, listeners, have you sensed that the bees you've interacted with might have thoughts, feelings, personalities? Do you keep bees? What's been your experience? What are your bee questions? The listener writes, does it bother bees that their hives can be trucked away perhaps hundreds of miles to pollinate another monocrop. Bees seem to step up their activity every fall as preparation for winter. Hmm. Stephen Buckman?
3: Yeah. uh, Having spent a lot of time in California, around Davis and the Central Valley, um, during my grad school days, you know, about a million honeybee colonies are trucked from all over the country to Bakersfield and then, well, even areas like Winters around Davis to pollinate the almond crop, and they are put under a lot of stress. It's not a healthful thing for the bees, so they're they're crammed together. Usually, four or more hives to a pallet, and um, because they're close together, they can exchange parasites and diseases. Um, also beekeepers aren't exactly happy about almond honey. They can't sell it. Almond honey has a fluorescent, bitter compound in it, an alkaloid, and uh, it's really not a pleasant thing to eat a tablespoon of honey or slather some almond honey onto your toast in the morning. Uh, But the bees do, do eat it. But as you mentioned, it is a monoculture. So just like uh, for humans to be healthy and happy, we need a mixed diet. Uh, Bees also need a mixed diet. So you can imagine a bee colony or even solitary bees, the kind that I study that live in the ground or maybe in twigs, um, in a meadow, a flowering meadow. So they have many, many choices, and they often have a mixed diet. But when you put all those honeybee colonies on a monocrop like almonds, uh, you know, in the old days, the almond orchards were beautiful. They had a uh, undercover, understory, I should say, native wildflower called uh, red maids, and they were beautiful. Today, however, there's zero tolerance for that. They're scraped clean. Uh, of course, the almonds are um, harvested by shaking their machines, big machines that grab the trunk of the tree and shake them. Uh, my late great mentor, uh, Robin Thorpe, a UC Davis professor, one of the first things that he told me was, well, you know, Steve, the farmers around here don't say almond. They say almonds. And I said, hey, Robin, why is that? He said, well, Steve, they have to shake the L out of the trees. (laughs) Sorry. Sorry. I I couldn't resist. Cute
1: cute dad joke there. Um, (laughs) Well, another listener writes, be soccer. How does that work? Can you talk, I think this is another Chitka experiment, right? The soccer one? Can you talk yeah. about bee soccer?
3: Yeah, he's done it. Uh, also, uh, Peter Kevin from Canada has done a variation of this. Um, bees can be trained to push uh, balls around. Uh, in the case of Peter Kevin, he trained them to roll a ball off a uh, little well depression that held sugar water uh Lars Chitka did it a little differently and and some other people have done it and so on YouTube you can go on YouTube and see ble- bees playing soccer but in reality they were moving the balls around to uh get to a sugar uh sugar reward uh my my favorite uh Chitka experiment is what you might consider an example of tool using. And the tool in this case is a piece of string. So Lars and his grad students trained uh, bumblebees to pull a string, and the string was attached to a blue plastic disc, a round disc. And it held also sugar water because, let's face it, bees are sugar junkies. They love it. And it was hidden under a clear plastic lid so the bees could see it. They know they wanted the sugar and the only way to get it was to pull really, really hard and tug and tug until they could get this really heavy disc out from under uh, the lid and get to it. Even more amazing, the bees that were trained, he put other bees in a little um, holding cell, if you would, but they could see the trained bees and what they were doing. So these watcher bees were totally naive, and they had not been trained To pull the string to get the reward. What happened when they let them out of their little penalty box? Well, they went right to the string. And having never done it before, they were learning by watching. We call this social learning. And I I think that's just an amazing thing that bees can do.
1: Yes, I think Chitka and others talked about how that really showed that bees have a tremendous amount of cognitive flexibility, essentially. Um, Right. That the idea that they have limited behavioral flexibility should go by the wayside, which I guess makes me wonder you know before this kind of research that you've been doing on you know the thought memory emotional capacity of bees and and to what degree it exists and that you've been able to really do this more recently because of advancements in technology what was or i guess i should say has been the prevailing understanding about bees and bee consciousness on that level
3: yeah well not really a lot until people like uh, Chitka and Peter Kevin got into it. I mean, I, I consider myself a pollination ecologist, so I go out into the wild and I find a sexy plant to study and usually some native bees like carpenter bees or anthophora or my favorite bee genus, Centris. and I sit back and I, I watch them. I mean, I may have a tape recorder to record their sounds or stopwatch or something. And, and so, most of my uh, research over the decades has been uh, observational. And so, for example, my favorite kind of pollination is something I call buzz pollination. And if you like tomatoes, blueberries, or cranberries, or kiwi kiwifruit, uh, you may not have met a buzz pollinating bee, but that bee, those female bees were working behind the scenes to pollinate those flowers that gave rise to those fruits. So if you think of a tomato blossom, it's like putting the fingers of your hand together, and each fingertip has two little holes in it. And those anther pores are the only way that the pollen can get out of the flower. And even more remarkably, these female bees turn themselves into tuning forks. So by that, I mean... The bees grab on with their jaws, their mandibles, and they use the muscles, the flight machinery that powers their wings inside their thorax, and they shiver, they vibrate. And these powerful vibrations are transmitted to the flowers, and in less than a tenth of a second, the pollen grains are all stirred up inside the hollow anthers, and they come blasting out in the form of a pollen cloud, strikes the bees, um, on their hairy bodies, and then they will either back off and hover or they'll hang by one leg and scoop up all this really nutritious uh, protein-rich pollen. And I used to think that bees had to learn that. So there are instinctual behaviors uh, when the bees first pupate and emerge as an, as an adult bee, and then there are things that they have to learn. Well, we took uh, in the laboratory of Dan Pappage, who I work with at the University of Arizona, uh, Dan's student, Avery Russell, now a professor at uh, Missouri State University. He and Dan and I took bees that had never experienced a flower at all, not an artificial flower, not a real flower. And we put deadly nightshade flowers, the genus Solanum, just like a tomato, in this little foraging arena and the bees came out and literally on the first and second visits to this, they knew what to do. They, sometimes they may have climbed around the back of the flower, but in just a few seconds they knew to bite the anther, shiver their flight muscles and sonicate or blast the pollen out. So that is a fairly complex behavior that is innate. It's instinctual. Uh, they didn't have to learn it, so that was a big, big surprise for me.
1: Hmm. And what did that point to with regard to to bee consciousness?
3: Yeah, that that bees are super flexible. You know, bees have been around for uh, 130 million years since the Cretaceous. They evolved from carnivorous wasps, and uh, <clears throat> during that time, when they were co-evolving in this sort of uh, mutualistic dance, although sometimes it's an arms race rather than a dance with flowering plants. Flowering plants and bees are these partners, but they're also you can also think of them as almost as adversaries, right? Because the flowers want to move their pollen, basically their gamete or sex cells around. They're physically rooted to the ground. Uh, a flower can't go on a date unless it's a prom corsage or it has a helpful bee or butterfly or fly uh, willing to carry its pollen from flower to flower. And bees are out to feed themselves and their larvae, their progeny. Uh, so, bees want to get every last scrap of the pollen, and they could care less about pollination. They're trying to feed themselves and their larvae, while the plants are offering a little bit of this as high-quality food, but holding back sometimes even a very tiny amount, like a thousandth of 1% of the pollen grains that need to go from the anther of one flower to the stigma of another to guarantee... Uh, pollination fertilization and then uh, fruit development so during this you know 100 million years of co-evolution bees have learned how to work flowers and flowers of very different shape and different scents and the flowers are hiding the pollen in places um, like the buzz pollination one I mentioned yeah some plants are deceitful like orchids a lot of orchids don't even have any nectar or pollen so they're they just sham this idea of rewards and the bees visit anyway.
1: <laughs> well let me go to Lisa in San Carlos. <laughs> Hi Lisa. Thanks for waiting. You're on.
5: Great topic. And my family and I got hooked on bees about well honey bees about six years ago when our daughter did a middle school project on colony collapse disorder. And from there, she, she really led the way, and she connected with our local um, bee guild in San Mateo County. And we got hives, and she's now at college, and her dad and I are now the responsible people taking care of these, these hives um, several generations you know, on. But the bees, there are so many benefits to honeybees. Um, I can't impress on people enough to If you've got the space and it doesn't require much and you've got neighbors that aren't going to freak out, um, get a hive. It's so interesting to watch them develop um, your your yard benefits, your neighbor's yard benefit um, from all the pollination. Um, and then you can harvest honey and harvest uh, beeswax and I just have to say, we watched a a swarm the other day, which was really one of the most remarkable things I've ever seen, which is this communication that all the bees in the hive decide either, you know, time to move on. We've got a queen. We need to find a new location. And within 48 hours, they rise up and they circle around in a big ball and they sort of hang out in a temporary spot. Before until a, a permanent place is located, a permanent new hive, and then all at once, there's this cloud of bees that just move in one direction, and they, and then they're gone, and they found their new home. And honestly, it was it was a revelation <laughs> to hmm. watch this. <laughs> you know, I'm I'm all in for the honeybee. So you know, <laughs>
1: well, to, well, these are things like. Local I... I can tell you you've gotten a lot of pleasure from having them and I know other people who have backyard bees. Trish though writes Stephen, I'm a beekeeper and recently read a discouraging article about the pro- proliferation of backyard beekeeping perhaps pushing out native bees. Does your guest know anything about this?
3: Yeah, I've I've studied uh competition between honeybees which are not native to North America. Uh, I, I, I should qualify that. About 12 million years ago, we had a native honeybee in Nevada, at least. We know that from fossils. It went extinct. But otherwise, bees were uh, – honeybees were, were brought to Mexico and to Florida uh, by the Spanish, and they basically escaped into the wild, and we've had feral populations since then. Um, honeybees are wonderful pollinators. Um uh, there are 11 species of honeybees in the world. They mainly evolved in Asian rainforests. Um, in fact, I've studied some in, in Malaysia, some of the world's largest honeybees, and wrote a children's book about that called The Bee Tree. But um, the problem happens because honeybees forage, they're a superorganism, and they forage over a very wide range. They can fly several kilometers, um, in fact, up to 14 kilometers, although generally they're foraging within like two or so kilometers. Um, The the problem happens not when you're a backyard beekeeper with one hive, but when you're a commercial beekeeper, and maybe you have a thousand or more colonies sitting, uh, let's say, on national forest land, which is public land. And so basically if you have hundreds or thousands of honeybee colonies in a, in an apiary, uh, let's say on that national forest land, they're literally stripping the standing crop of nectar and pollen away from other native bees and hummingbirds and butterflies and moths and flies and all the pollinators. So um, that, that's my objection that we shouldn't be placing huge numbers of uh, Colonies together in in one spot, so I have I have no issue at all with with hobbyist beekeepers and the the wonders of beekeeping that way.
1: Well, we're getting lots of bee observations. Liz Listener writes: In the summer, I often find dozens of bees sleeping in my lavender, hanging onto the vertical stalks, and waking in the cool morning hours. I've seen an unusual species of bee that looks like a huge horsefly. It's all black without an apparent stinger. Love the bees! Three exclamation marks. Another listener tweets, Surrounded by a swarm in the Baja Desert, in Baja Desert, I immediately crouched down to a fetal position, and after investigating me, they moved on. I had been luckily told before that a standing person is more threatening, like a bear. Hmm, Is that true? Uh, Possibly.
3: Possibly. the, the, the previous caller talked about, gave a really good description of a honeybee swarm, and people get freaked out by swarms. Uh, I don't blame them. Uh, I've been in swarms, but I know that I'm not in danger. When a honeybee's colony has swarmed, it means that the old queen is uh, leaving with uh, about half of the workers in the colony, and they engorge with honey, so they almost can't physically sting. But it is scary to have, you know, about 20,000 bees swirling around you as they fly at about 15 miles per hour to their new home.
1: Yeah. Well, we will talk more about bees after the break. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim.
2: I like my girl just like I like my honey.
1: Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about the latest research on bees, suggesting they may have feelings, consciousness, dreams, and also what this means in terms of what we're seeing with bees these days, which is that they are dying off at alarming rates. We're talking with Stephen Buckman, a pollination ecologist who has also studied bees for more than 40 years and is author of What a Bee Knows, Exploring the Thoughts, Memories, and Personalities of Bees. And you, our listeners, are sharing your bee questions and bee observations with us at 866-733-678 six you can also post them on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter at KQED Forum or you can email forum at KQED.org. Lots of calls and comments. Let me go to Shay in San Francisco. Hi Shay.
2: First of all, I just want to say I am loving Forum. I just moved to California from Utah and glad to have this as my oh, morning yay. show. <laughs> um my question is about specifically monogamous bee relationships to a plant. In specific, one of my favorite plants and bee relationships is that between the female carpenter bee and Orpheum frutescens, which is a purple flower with a twisted stamen. I'd never heard anybody speak of buzz pollination, so wow, that's awesome. Because this female carpenter bee does tune herself to middle C. So if you strike middle C on a piano or on a tuning fork and then touch the stamen boom, that explosion. Wow. But what happens when this monogamous relationship cease to exist, either because the flower is gone or the bee is gone? And how can us humans protect these type of solo relationships between a specific flower and a specific type of bee?
1: Huh. Thanks, Jay. Uh, Stephen Buckman.
3: Yeah, that's a great observation. And hello from Utah, the beehive state. Uh, <laughs> Uh it's wonderful that you have seen buzz pollination in action. I think it's one of the most amazing things, and I started studying it in high school and have kept it up throughout my professional life, publishing many papers on it. The uh, <clears throat> carpenter bee is one that can buzz pollinate certain flowers, as the caller mentioned. Uh, they also do something else uh, kind of strange. They are great nectar robbers, so sometimes when a flower has a tubular a throat, it can be too long for the carp, even though the carpenter bees are some of our largest bees, uh, out of reach of the mouth parts. So they take their stiletto-like mouth parts and slit the base of the floral throat and suck out the nectar and not pollinate. So in one case for certain flowers, they can be excellent pollinators, and in other cases they can be uh, nectar thieves. Um, The point about Specialist bees is really interesting. Uh, honeybees are not specialists. Honeybees will visit and pollinate about 20% or so of the flowers within flight distance of their nest. Uh, other bees, uh, for example, in Utah, there's a tiny bee, uh, a pertida species that will pollinate the dwarf bear claw poppy, and it's the only kind of bee that we know that goes to that um, that um, the the fact that carpenter bees and bumblebees and honeybees visit a wide variety of plants, flowering plants, is mainly due to the fact that they're long lived, either as individuals or as the colony. Um, So they have to be collecting flowers, pollen, nectar from flowers every day, you know, through all the seasons, spring, summer, winter. Um, So when bees are pollinating just one or a few kinds of plants, for example, here in the desert right now, I'm studying a nest site of a uh, uh, bee in the genus Diadasia, Diadasia diminuta, and it only goes to globe mallows. Uh, This is in the mallow family, and even though there are blooming creosote bushes and other flowers around right now, the females only go to that, uh, and the caller is right. If you wipe out that flower for this specialist bee, the bee would go locally extinct. Um, so, so we do have these specialized relationships that we need to protect, and we can protect them by habitat uh, conservation, and if it happens to be something growing on our property, property or nearby. Uh, not using insecticides like the omnipresent neonicotinoids, which are systemic uh, insecticides in in nursery plants and applied as lawn chemicals and that sort of thing. Uh, and so, that really is one thing that that we can do to uh, to help bees is to give them a lot of choices, a lot of healthy uh, pollen and nectar in the form of flowers. <laughs>
1: Yes. You talked about mass bee die-offs as being a concern. You've been raising that concern actually since 1996, and people did take action, as you point out in your book. You know, there were these pollinator protection campaigns that sprung up. Farmers and citizens asked for government assistance and so on to try to help these pollinators and to try to incorporate pollinator-friendly farming practices, but they're still dying off. And of course, as you say, habitat loss is a huge part of it. Pesticides are a big part of it. Climate change is a big part of it. I- I'm wondering, too, if, if you think psychological stress is a big part of it and how it connects to all of this, to be die-offs. and so-
3: Yeah, I, I think it does does connect. Um, the book you mentioned from 1996 was a book called *The Forgotten Pollinators* that I co-wrote with Gary Nabhan, an ethnobotanist. Um, we 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 mentioned the coming together of a million colonies of honeybees to pollinate the almonds, and how stressful that is. Um, I think, in that case, also uh, we can think of the honeybee colony for uh, *Apis mellifera*, the western honeybee that they're living in those wooden boxes. Uh, This is a Langstroth hive. It's basically Civil War technology. It was invented by the Reverend Lorenzo Langstroth, a Pennsylvania minister, and the technology really hasn't changed since the 1850s. So even by putting those bees in the white boxes, uh, unless they're under a shade shelter and given plenty of water, is a stressful situation for them when, in fact, uh, we think maybe it's not so stressful. Um, hmm. That that hive, because of the beeswax, can become almost like a uh, sick building syndrome for the bees, right? All of that wax, uh, even though bees are flying miles in some cases to bring back nectar and pollen, they're exposed to various Um, heavy metals and insecticides and herbicides. And they're bringing all that stuff back home and it goes into the wax. It gets absorbed and then it becomes kind of a slow release emitter. So that's why I mentioned sort of the sick building syndrome. So you can have uh, not outright mortality, but you can have a lot of these chemicals that in combination are creating situations where the bees are lethargic or it's messing with their memory, uh, their navigation and orientation abilities. A lot of times insecticides are causing the bees to die out in the field because they can't navigate back home.
1: Hmm. So how has recognizing that bees have thoughts and memories and so forth changed the way that you treat bees in your own laboratory, for example, but also, what kinds of implications do you think it has for how we need to treat bees, especially the ones that we rely upon for, I think I saw estimates, about a third of the American diet when it comes right. to vegetables. Ex- yeah, organisms. about a
3: third of the global diet. So they're they're essential. Um, and I, I should say not only pollination, but there are other ecosystem services that bees provide, especially the ground-nesting bees that I study. So you can almost think of them as earthworms. They're tunneling aerates the soil, that pollen that the larvae eat is eventually defecated. So it's fertilizing the soil. So they're uh, immensely important, not just for, um, for pollination. Um,
1: so yeah. So what implications does that have? The fact that they are sentient, right? Uh, what implications does that have for how yeah. we treat bees in agriculture yeah. or even just treat them on an individual level or a side
3: Right. And for, for me personally, I, you know, during my early university years, I was collecting bees for uh, museums and I collected and killed thousands of bees. Um, a lot of those bees are still in use in museums. Uh, the data is valuable. Uh, bees are very difficult to identify to species on the wing. So, in some cases, I will still uh, sacrifice, euthanize a few bees as museum specimens to be able to identify them. But I'm not the uh, mass serial bee killer I used to be because I want to study them by observation or photographing them with my, my camera. Um, and I think as we learn to appreciate that bees can feel pain, they may have a primitive form of consciousness. Who knows? They may feel uh, pleasure. They're highly intelligent organisms. I think that we need to uh, treat them with respect and have some empathy for their for their lifestyles because they're just amazing, fascinating creatures to to watch and and learn to appreciate.
1: Well, this listener writes, yes, bees have emotions. My brother saw a bear tearing up a group of hives on his property. He drove them. He drove there, and the noise scared the bear away. He put the hives back together without a single sting. He said they knew he was there to help. Another listener wants to know, I'm curious what the lifespan of a bee is. Do they gradually age and wear down, or are they productive until the day they die?
3: Oh, that's an excellent question. Yeah, in the case of honeybees, they live about four to six weeks, uh, they live a little longer um, during the winter when they're not out foraging. Um, so that during that four to six week period, they're making many foraging trips per day. I mean, it can be as little as four or five, or it might be 10 or 15. And again, they often are, are flying several miles to and from. If you look at an old bee, uh, an old honeybee or an old solitary bee, female, uh, they get worn. They get kind of developed sort of bald spots where the hair is worn off on their thorax. And the, their wings become uh, tattered and frayed at the edges. So literally, most bees don't die at home. Uh, they'll die out in the field, and they literally do wear themselves out. And so, as I mentioned, the the wings will be frayed, and they're losing hair, and uh, they they do just get worn out.
1: We're talking about bees with Stephen Buckman and you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Let me go to Tim in San Francisco. Hi, Tim.
6: Hey, how are you guys doing? I love this topic. I love bees. Uh, I used to work on the coast in uh, Northern California, like um, between Santa Cruz and and, um, um, Pacifica. And recently I was out there uh, last year and I came across something and I have a question for you. Um, I'm really partial to bumblebees. And I was always told that bumblebees are very individualistic and they don't colonize. And I was kind of surprised because I was hiking um, down on the coast. And in one of the cliffs, that's kind of those really hard, sandy cliffs that it's like packed sand. There were hundreds of bumblebees that were colonizing together. They weren't sharing the same. They were burrowing into uh, the cliff, into that hard, sandy cliff. And, um, but there were like, I, as I walked along, I just saw hundreds of them just like, you know, they, I don't know if they were working together, but they were living together. So is that an unusual, um, behavior for bumblebees or is that something that is pretty common? And I just didn't, I misunderstood, uh, what they did.
3: Oh, thanks Tim. Yeah, that's an excellent question. I, I think he is confusing bumblebees with, with solitary bees in this case, um, We've got about 250 species of bumblebees in the world, and they are social. They do form colonies, but they're more likely to live in an abandoned mouse or rodent nest uh, underground, but shallowly underground. So in that sandstone cliff, um, most of our solitary bees will nest in flat ground or in vertical banks, and uh, it sounds very similar to what I was working on as part of a uh, brood cell microbiome project, I'm working on with scientists at Cornell University and um, UC Riverside and other places. So, we, a couple of years ago, we spent two weeks at the Bodega Bay Marine Lab, uh, a lab operated by my alma mater, UC Davis. And in the cliffs there are a bumblebee mimic, a, a solitary bee called um Excuse me. It's a it's a solitary bee uh, that looks like a bumblebee, uh, and it is in the genus Anthophora. Anthophora bomboides, but they are nesting gregariously. So this is not uncommon for solitary bees. Some of them will nest singly, and you might have you know one nest per acre or one nest per oh I don't know five by five meters area. <laughs> But in other cases, like the mallow uh, uh, malabies I said I'm working on this week, uh, they're nesting in the hard-packed ground of a uh, private airstrip. And uh, I'm seeing maybe 20 nests in a little 10 by 10 uh, centimeter square. So you can imagine that there are many, many hundreds uh, perhaps even a thousand nests in a in a square meter, so it's thought that these bees are nesting together, kind of like the selfish herd, their safety in numbers, right? why birds will flock or fish will uh, swim in a in a in a school for defense uh so we we do think that bees are aggregating in these areas because the soil is right, and perhaps they're well, not perhaps there will definitely be their host food plant nearby. So where it was good for mom to nest, hey, maybe that's good for me to nest there too.
1: Well, we have a couple questions about whether it's helpful to talk to bees. A listener writes, there's a belief that you have to talk to bees. Keep them up on the happenings of the neighbors if you want them to keep producing honey. Do you think there's any truth in it? And another listener, Pete, writes, do bees respond to sounds or music?
3: Yeah, that's interesting. I've heard that. as kind of an old adage. I I don't really think there's much to that in terms of talking to honeybees. Honeybees are uh, almost deaf to airborne sounds. So in most cases, they're not even going to hear you. Uh, But when bees are standing or resting on a substrate on a surface, if that is energized by sound and they feel the vibration, uh, that they do, they do respond to. Um, the, you know, in, in there, there there is a uh, an organ at the base of the bee's antenna, the Johnston's organ, that is uh, that does respond to uh, vibration, but it's um, usually very very close to other bees or the sound source. Uh, so if it's At some distance, they're not really going to uh, pick up on that. The earlier caller mentioned something about middle C, which kind of made me chuckle because that's a a good frequency for my buzz pollinating bees. In fact, uh, 512 hertz or cycles per second, or even better yet, A, a musical A at 440, is the right frequency to blast that pollen out of those tomato flowers.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you for teaching us that bees are sentient, and I hope it has the impacts that you hope it will have as more people recognize this. Stephen Buckman, a real pleasure to talk with you.
3: Yeah, it was a pleasure to be here on your program. Thank you.
1: Steve, Stephen Buckman's book is What a Bee Knows, Exploring the Thoughts, Memories, and Personalities of Bees. My thanks to our listeners for sharing their bee thoughts and bee experiences and bee questions, and of course to Caroline Smith, who produced today's segment. This is Forum. I'm Nina Kim.